0: Welcome, all you weirdos, for Cohens and everyone who plays to bet that Phalong would be the breakout character of 2023. It is time for your 51st Weird Dose of X, aka Phalong Palooza. As always, we remain the mutant member of your weird science podcast family. Here in the state of the art wrong turn studio, high atop stately weird science tower, I am your host, Jason. And rejoining me today after a brief absence is our West Coast correspondent, Ruben. Ruben, how the heck are you today? I'm good. Somebody found me. You sent the hounds after me and they drove me back. Well, we got to do it. I mean, I can only do this by myself so long before, you know, (laughs) people just start to riot. There's peasants with pitchforks and torches and, you know, we have a whole lot of books to talk about today. So to hear me talk about
1: six books all by myself, that ought
0: to be way too much.
1: Well, you need somebody here to have the offensive and absurd commentary. You're kind of straight-laced, my friend. Which, which one of us is that? We'll have to <laughs> we'll have to argue
0: about that later. But, uh, yes, we do have a literal plethora of books to discuss today. That, that's right, six. Uh, and I've put these in what I think is in more or less increasing order of interest. So the first few we'll cover pretty quickly, and then we'll you know, finish strong with the good stuff. Uh, not to give away uh, our ratings or anything up front, but... Uh, these books are, well, first we're gonna talk about Invincible Iron Man number 7 and Red Goblin number 5, which, maybe not bad, but not, not central. And then we're gonna talk about Bishop War College number 5, uh, X-Men Before the Fall, Newton's First Strike number 1, X-Men number 23, and finally Immortal X-Men number 12. It's a whole lot to cover, so we'd better get started before Phalong sends a Stark Sentinel after our asses. Straight base, I'll tell you straight. Okay, uh, first up is the Invincible Iron Man number seven, Fight the Future. It's also the name of a 1998 X-Files movie, but I think that's a coincidence. It's written by Jerry Duggan, art by Juan Fergari, colors by Brian Valenza, letters by Joe Carabagna. So, uh, yeah, I guess, uh, this will throw this to you, Ruben. Surprise, surprise for an iron minute. What, what do you listeners need to know about this issue of Invincible Iron Man?
1: Yeah, not a lot. Essentially, here we've got Feilong still kind of one-upping Tony Stark in the strategic planning arena. So, Rhodey and Tony are going to break into Stark Unlimited to sabotage one of the manufacturing facilities for the Stark Sentinels. And they break in um, with a little trick with Rhodey getting in the Iron Man suit and kind of doing the the break-in-the-front entrance uh, kind of move. And then Tony's in some secret stealth armor that he developed, who knows when, and he breaks in kind of more quietly. So Iron Man, it, you know, Rhodey Iron Man kind of goes in, shoots the place up, gets chased by a bunch of sentinels, you know, pulls them out of the facility, and then Tony sneaks in, plants some bombs. And I guess the big surprise here is that at some point, uh, Rhodey decides he needs to, he thinks he's kind of cleared out the. Stark Sentinels, and he needs to step out of his suit and get back into his. Yeah, that was a War big mistake. Suit. I don't think
0: that was all that motivated.
1: I mean, you're in some armor. Yeah.
0: Why get into other armor and then spend just a moment in no armor at all and get yourself <laughs> just beat up by a Sentinel captured. and get captured? Yes, yeah.
1: yes. I mean, I have I have seen repeatedly, you know, kind of comments about the Iron Man suit being less of a weapon than the War Machine suit. Right? I mean, it doesn't have the big missile launchers on the shoulders and things like that just has repulsor rays. So yeah, I guess
0: more, more general purpose unless focused on, you know, heavy
1: artillery blowing shit up. Yeah. So I guess he felt like he needed to get into his, you know, heavy weaponry suit. And I guess they're also trying to, you know, keep the dupe up that it was Tony in the Iron Man suit, right? I guess. So he need to switch back. But in any event, he's about to get into the war machine suit, he doesn't. He gets captured by Sentinels. And then later, uh, Fei Long grabs one of the people that was working at the factory. And kills and has a, I guess he's talking to Nimrod and Nimrod kills this individual and then they i guess impale the body on some of the wreckage and they use that as a way to uh suggest that Rodie was you know attacking yeah, they, and they killing the audience.
0: They, they want to blame this on Rodie so they they already had him for you know breaking and entering yeah. but they also want to pin murder on him so they they kill a guy and make it look like it was Rodie's fault
1: uh, yeah so, so then they can execute him and
0: you know piss off I guess not pit off, piss off, but like hurt I mean, Tony. He's in New York State, right? Does New York State have the death penalty? Because <laughs> they talk, but they're very clear that oh, they're gonna he's gonna die for this. But you know, again, I'm no expert, but I think that that takes that's a long term way of killing someone. That takes years and decades. Sometimes it seems where I don't, I don't know. I think I think just yeah, he'll be in prison for murder is would be bad enough.
1: Regardless, you know, he's framed his friend, and Tony feels like hey, I I caused this by getting Rudy involved. Hmm in my battle with Phelong. And then there's, uh, I guess, uh, the Orcus folks are talking about, you know, the facility does get exploded. So they're asking, like, is there enough capacity, right, to... Yeah, here is the the
0: one page that's really relevant to, you know, to X-Book readers. It's, it's page 24. So Feilong, we should have a ding sound every time we say Phelong today because he is all over these books. It's crazy. Uh, he does say there are other secret factories also making Stark Sentinels, all right? But he says this this setback will somewhat slow down their ability to make them quite as fast as they'd like. So they'll take by out everyone Hellfire they wanted night, to. Yeah. Hellfire night, Orcus won't have quite enough to, quote, get rid of all of our targets as we hoped. So it's going to you know set them back a little bit, but they'll still be able to be a real pain. This book also reaffirms that after the mutants are taken care of, Orcus is planning on going after the Avengers and other superhumans as well which makes it more relevant to a book like Iron Man. Sure, I I can understand why that's mentioned here. But would Orcus really go for that? I mean, Phalong, sure. He hates the Avengers, we know why. Uh, Nimrod, he hates all humans. Kill all humans is pretty much his thing, even in secret, so he'll go along. I mean, Dr. Stasis, Dr. Devo, Dr. Gregor, all these others, are they really going to go along with the killing superhumans? I'm curious to see some, you know internal meeting where there's some dissension in those ranks.
1: i think that could be fun and i mean you see these three together and we've seen um BODOC with them as well they seem to be like the really you know hardcore villain side of the workers yeah, I mean, organization three of them are robots and one of them is made himself
0: a, a posthuman of some kind because he hates the avengers so much so they are the ones who, who hate people more than the others
1: yeah I think Orcus is interesting. There's definitely some backstabbing within backstabbing, right? You've got Nimrod and um, Omega Sentinel, right, as the the true mechanical faction within Orcus that would betray everybody, (laughs) even these people they're working with. I think Falon's kind of the the biggest dope, right, because he seems to be the most pro-humanity, right? And it seems like he thinks that everybody else is with him. Yeah, he
0: has some very personal reasons for hating the people he hates, and we'll see if that plays out well for him. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's about what people need to know about Iron Man, I think. So, would you want to give this
1: score? Yeah, just a seven. It's not – as an Iron Man fan, it's interesting enough. And as an X-Men fan, it's kind of fun to see some crossover and stories moving. But, you know, it's not revolutionary. It's not the most clever. Yeah, I, I do like that Tony does mostly seem to be
0: acting like Tony Stark, which in some recent Iron Man books, he was, you know, kind of a, a dope and a, a sad sack where – I mean, he's he's upset at the whole – you know, roadie thing, but in a more in-character way.
1: Yeah, I mean, totally understandable, right? Like, you ask your buddy to help you out and you get him thrown in jail. I'd be kind of upset <laughs> about myself, too, right? And it was Indian. fun to see She-Hulk, cried as like, hey, she's the on-call on-retainer attorney, right? To try to help him with some of this. Makes sense. So, it all worked. I enjoyed the story. It was yeah, good. It's, it's nice to
0: nice to see a connected universe going on. I always enjoy that. And and speaking of a connected universe, our ding sound fei Long shows up in a Weird, weird place this week. I don't even know about it until I think I saw it mentioned in a comment on the internet somewhere. Uh, So I'm going to talk for just one quick minute about Red Goblin number five, written by Alex Packnadel, art by Jan Jan or Jan Bazaldua, colors by David Curiel, letters by Joe Caramagna. Now, Ruben, are you a big collector of this Red Goblin series?
1: No. The only thing I know about Red Goblin is he
0: has a pretty cool looking marble snap card okay <laughs> so <laughs> that's about it this is the main character of this book is little normie osborne son of harry grandson of norman and i don't know how exactly but he has his own symbiote called rascal uh the details of the book don't much matter for our purposes and i haven't really been following them uh, other than noting that when carnage normie and miles start a rumble in manhattan outside stark unlimited tower there's a tie-in the owner of Stark Unlimited, that's Iron Man Phelong. in sound, dispatches a Stark Sentinel to settle everyone's kettle. And what this shows me, again, is that Marvel has really tried to integrate Phelong and these new Iron Man Sentinels into the larger universe. And that's that's kind of neat. And this book isn't even written by Jerry Duggan. So somebody is paying attention up there. And, uh, you know, it's nice to see that the mutants aren't off, well, on their own island, exactly, in a literary sense these days. They're just trying to make it matter to the other books, which is fun. So, yeah, I'm not going to give this a rating because I have very little idea what's going on. But I did want to mention it in case there's people out there who want to collect every little tie-in to this Prokoa stuff. Red Goblin number 5, it's out there. and it, it, it looks pretty good.
1: Yeah, my comment on that would be it's, it's very cool to have sort of the stuff that's happening in these X-Men books matter without having mutants in it. That's a really neat thing.
0: That's true. Yeah, no mutants in this book. Just uh, mutant villains and how their mutant villainy is, you know, spilling over into other, other books. Okay, the next book I'm going to talk about is Bishop War College, number five of five. The final issue. Written by Jay Holtham. Pencils by Sean Damien Hill. Inks by Victor Nava. Colors by Espen Grundegern. Letters by Travis Lanham. Designed by Tom Muller. With... Jay Bowen. So, no Alberto Foch on art this time. Uh, he had been doing the 616 art because this is, you know, Between Two Worlds kind of a book. Uh, this time it's all Hill and Nava. And they were also the sole artists credited on issue number one. So, I guess it was just those middle issues where they brought in a second artist. Now, there's another deliberate mirroring of issue number one in the series with its opening page. Uh, the first page of issue one is a close up of an angry Bishop face as he yells, Again! he's ordering his new recruits to practice the fighting some more. Now, the first page of issue five is another close-up of a slightly different angry bishop face, with the caption being not again, as he suffers through tempo doing some time-bending stuff. I I appreciate that kind of thing. It makes me feel clever when I notice it, which, you know, I like feeling clever. The
1: art is bizarre to me. There's a lot of
0: saliva in his mouth. And again, that does match up with issue number one, too. We could do a (laughs) side-by-side, and he's He's, I guess he's, a... <laughs> he's a salivary kind of guy. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> okay. that's his, his uh, new character secondary trait. mutation has to do with his salivary. Oh, yeah, that sounds like a, a really bad mutant. <laughs> okay, so let's just remember that Bishop, as we start this issue, is on Earth-63, world where mutant powers are linked to the genes that connect with race and where, consequently, all mutants are black. Uh, not that there's different people being mutants. Now, we still have Professor X and all the ones we know and love, except here, they have dark skin. We don't know any of their history or how it made their lives different or their experiences as mutants different, but they're drawn pretty cool. That's all we get from that. Now, in this issue, it's revealed that the woman posing as this world's Heather Tucker is actually the Earth-616 Heather Tucker, also known as the mutant Tempo. In one line of dialogue, Tempo tells Bishop that the real Earth-63 Heather, which is what I want to know about last issue, She says Heather is, quote, at home, asleep in her bed, safe and sound, happy. Now, I need a little more than this. Are they, how long has this game of alternate Heather's been going on? Are are they in cahoots together? Uh, Is Heather in on this plan? Is she also a mutant? Get no answers at all here. We know that Earth-63 Heather wanted to spend time with her dad, who's dead in, excuse me, Earth-616 Heather wants to spend time with her Earth-63 dad, who's dead in, in the regular Marvel Universe, so that's why she wants to be there, but how did this work out? It, did that confuse you too, or am I missing something obvious?
1: No, I rolled my eyes when I read that explanation, and it would almost seem like she must have put her in like a, a time stasis, because she been sleeping the entire freaking time, right? This is like several days of there's a big activity. question
0: there i mean is it like oh yeah sure visitor from another world who looks like me spend some time with my dad that'll make you feel better and that, that could be one story or yeah. it could be you know i've wrapped you up in a time cocoon and i'm taking over your life and either of those stories could be cool but they spend really not nearly enough time explaining what's going on in earth 63 in this whole series
1: not to mention like the real thing is yeah thanks you just got my dad killed Yeah, they really want to make that an emotional
0: moment, right? Her dad died in front of her for a second time. That is a big deal, but it goes by so quick that it's hard to to really register it as important.
1: Well, I'd say the Earth-63 tempo, too, wouldn't she have a vendetta once she found out? Oh my god, yeah. You know, the 616 tempo showed up, and let's say she put her in a time stasis right to go spend time, and then got her killed. Yeah, Bishop killed. and Tempo do seem
0: to have kind of screwed up this world, haven't they? I mean, it seemed yeah. more or less peaceful before they got there, and now it's a mess. So maybe we'll have a, a sequel of, uh, you know, universe versus universe.
1: I mean, get a better writer, but this could set up an interesting thing in my mind. This could be a, you know, big conflict. Although it feels like... All sorts of
0: interesting, you know, ideas here that could be spun out into cool books, but we just don't don't get it in this series. Well, so Tempo has some light swill she produces out of nowhere, and she uses that to send herself and Bishop back to the 616 with no problem whatsoever. Uh, they rejoin the battle beneath the already in progress, between those War College kiddos fighting the Orcus Fenris tag team, and long story short, there's like a pretty dull fight scene that ends with Magic and Danny Moonstar teleporting in to save the day, Orcus and Fenris are arrested, and everybody claps, hooray! Uh, we're told, and this is another crazy thing, another just one panel line of dialogue, the Orcus invaders will be dumped in Central Park, quote, where the proper authorities can find them, which seems like a fairly cavalier way to deal with, you know, a literal invasion. I, I think maybe they might spend some more time on what's going on there. but
1: it Just think about <clears> the idea in general, right? Like somebody invades, let's say, I don't know. You, uh, that's it's too political i was gonna say ukraine Uh-oh. but but picks australia right somebody invades australia and then the australian authorities dump these people in america like what would we do <laughs> i mean we, that's a country where we have like a you know whatever good relationship with them you can think of a country where we don't that's right true. like i think it's we just be like, like we're, we're not gonna pick is, them up
0: yeah it's not like orcas is an american organization that's a great point
1: yeah so i don't understand like what they think is going to happen like why and this is a sort of, like, legal mind issue. I'm like, what's the basis for a crime? Like, the police would do nothing. They'd be like, okay, great. I mean, so, the, so really I it's mean, a the US really stupid Is it even a
0: signatory to the, what is that international judicial situation? Yeah. I don't know the name, but I know what you're talking about. You know, about. the one that if uh, Putin shows up in your country, you have to arrest him that way. Yeah. Well, anyway, so there's another skip where there was some sort of a trial that happened in front of whoever's on the Quiet Council in whatever time period this happens in. Uh Fenris twins get sent to the pit, where it seems the only other current inmate is Mr. Sinister, who calls them Nazis and everyone claps. Uh, and then there's a data page where Bishop gives all his recruits oddly high grades. I mean, even Amas, who you recall, accidentally merged with Cam Long and one of the Struckers to form this giant, out of control Tiger Man monster uh am i asking it's a b plus i don't know i think i think bishop would be a tougher grader i don't think he's a good
1: i don't think he's a very good whole teaching say, what, thing what is he evaluated he was freaking in a yeah you know another universe the we entire time
0: one lesson with them on the beach and then he got sent to another universe
1: yeah he got sent to another universe and he comes back and they're i guess the conflicts resolved so he's like oh yeah these are great I have no idea what the basis is for him evaluating the people. And he does a write-up, right? Like, that's the data page. Yeah, it's
0: supposed to feel like this emotional moment, like he's grown and learned as a person because he spent time
1: in the other universe, but it, it, it doesn't
0: work. It's it's not motivated.
1: It just makes me think of, you know, in in my capacity, I review people. And sometimes people are like, hey, rate me. And I've worked with them for like five seconds, right? I'm like, I can't write an actual review for you. Bishop ain't got no problem. He just, <laughs> he's got these like strong opinions and he barely, barely interacts yeah, and with anyone. These any kids of them.
0: have now graduated from the war college and there's going to be a whole new batch. Yeah. So, again, to was terrible. the only semi interesting page is one featuring guess, guess who's in this book? You want to say <laughs> Ruben, who, who's showing up with this book? Falong. It's Phalong. He,
1: <laughs> he looks weird, though. He looks weird. The face of him looks yeah, really, really everybody weird. Everybody in this
0: book looks weird. Uh, now no (laughs) sentinels, no stark unlimited mentioned here. He's just hanging out on the bloom, which is Orcas' satellite, which we'll see again later. Uh, and and he and evil robot Moira chatting about how this latest operation, you know, didn't go so good. But he claims that no, it was a success. We're gonna see this again where a failed operation must is actually a success, because he says they learned about the pit, namely that Sabretooth and Al aren't there anymore. Now it seems to me that didn't Sabretooth over in Sabretoon the Exiles have this whole big interaction with all these Orcas characters and yes. Orcas
1: bases. Yes, they should be quite aware that they're not in the pit. They really should. even if this is the first time they learn that, like, how did they actually learn that, right? The Fenris twins break in.
0: There's one and line about how monitors? the
1: machine, the, the
0: drilling machine, before it got stopped, sent back, like, one image. Yeah. There's a, a quick line
1: about that, but, again, not very much. I don't think that would be enough to really convince you, right, that they're not down there. I wouldn't even be convinced that they're that they found the pit, right? I'd be like, oh, they just burrowed into this
0: they found other cavern, hole. and there was nothing <laughs> there.
1: Great. This is no. This is the
0: pit where we keep Sinister. That's not the pit where we keep everybody else.
1: Plus, if they burrowed into the area where Sinister is, then what? Sinister just decided to stay there. Uh, I don't want to come out. Hard, it's hard yeah. to say. Hard to it's say. Bizarre. Now, yeah. So, quick word about the art of this issue.
0: That word is bad. It's it's real bad. (laughs) Now, maybe blame this on there being only two weeks between issues four and five, but the faces, the bodies are just misshapen and awkward. It doesn't look like a whole lot of time was put in. I mean, I've gone a little too far. The first few pages set on Earth-63, including, you know, Saliva Bishop, to me, those are fine. It's just everything back in the 616 that's just nasty looking, which is a shame because I've had a lot of really good things to say about the Hill and Nava art team on prior issues. This one just looks, you know, dashed off. So yeah, this was a disappointing series. The concept of a world with only black X-Men seems like there's a, a lot of meat there uh, with real complex issues that could have been explored. But instead, they just devoted a lot of page space to one lame fight under Krakoa with a bunch of characters I don't care about. In the end, it just didn't matter. So I'm giving this issue a 8th. Three out of ten.
1: Yeah, that's probably the right score. I would just give it a big fuck you five. I, I wanted to care about this story, but I was annoyed. If you want to see like a multiversal thing, go watch Across the Spider-Verse. That's pretty fun and good. I hear that's a really good half of a movie. Yes. Like the word on the street. Yes, yeah. Some people are really offended by that. I
0: I don't care at all. I mean, but... it did make like a zillion dollars, so clearly there is <laughs> going to be another sequel. You're going to get the end. You're just yes. not going to get the end in this, this uh, hour and a half or whatever it is.
1: Yes. John Wayne and his his philosophy of how movies have to be written is is fair and valid, but I still enjoyed it immensely. I There's did not some enjoy chatter this, this, this Bishop uh, story.
0: We can do a quick commercial here. get a, a a lot of chatter <laughs> about the movie in the Slack, and hey, folks out there, if you just join up in the Slack, you can hang out with us, too, and and tell Ruben that he's wrong about movies as well. Who doesn't want to yes. do that? Yes, yes. Okay, you have more to add about Bishop before I move on? Yeah, I could just get angry about it. But I, that's I, think we've, not... I think we've said all that needs to be said. Yeah, let's it. just talk about books that are interesting. <laughs> well, we, we will eventually. But first, <laughs> uh, this book is X-Men, colon, Before the Fall, m dash oh, You First Strike. <laughs> uh, written by Steve Orlando. Art by Valentina Pinti. Uh, colors by Frank William. Letters by Travis Lanham. Designed by Tom Muller. And Jay Bowen. I always make that distinction. Some books say with, some books say and, some books leave Jay Bowen out entirely. And I'm oddly fascinated by that. Uh, so the art team here is new to me. This is Valentina Pinti's first book for Marvel. I see she's done some indie work, some Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, the colorist Frank William, has mostly done Star Wars books for Marvel, although he did do colors for that Axe Star Fox one shot that we did. So we have seen him once before. I. I don't know if he's joined his fellow colorist in blocking the Weird Science Twitter account yet. Uh, <laughs> he may, he's pretty busy, may not have have got around to it. We'll have to ask him about it. So this is the second of four promised before the fall one-shots. Uh, the last two, Heralds of Apocalypse by Al Ewing and Sinister Four by Kieran Gill, will be coming out on June 28th and July 5th, respectively. I'm hoping those last two blow my socks off, because this one really didn't.
1: I'll be surprised if if they're not at least engaging and interesting. I swear, like, I've got this theory that you follow the writers and you'll probably be happy for the most part. And this book just convinces me that that theory is at least 85% accurate. Because if you look who was writing these, like, before the fall one-shots, like, Steve Orlando's got to be the weakest of the link.
0: Yeah, and they do seem to be tying into the books that the writers had already been writing. Like, the, the first one we read was all about tying into Legion of X and Way of X. Those things and kind of tying that up. And this is really a lot of stuff that Steve Orlando has been writing. It's, it's things from Marauders. It's things from uh, the 2099 book he was written is kind of tied in. Things from his X-Men Unlimited comic are tying in. So it's really very, very concentrated Steve Orlando
1: If that's what you want, you really got Aaron Spades. I did a Jim Werner checking the page count thing with this issue so many times. It took just me a couple tries, And yeah. I was like, oh God, how many more pages are left? And it's a little oversized, right? It seems like it's a bit longer than a regular issue. 35 pages in the digital edition here. Yeah. yeah. It, it felt like it was like 90 pages. It was so... And, and nothing happens. It's not like it's dense and slow because of that. It's just Boring from like page one to page whatever, thirty five. Really, the dialogue is real
0: tough. Do you remember when uh, uh Jeremy used to do the Orlando zone Yeah, Don't read it out loud yeah. on uh <laughs> on the DC podcast? I love that segment because him reading it out loud in this, you know, very authoritative British voice, it just made it so much more fun. So, Jeremy, if you're out there, if you want to take over all the Steve Orlando books for us in the X line, please but we're begging you. Uh, so yeah, we're not going to go through this book page by page because it really doesn't matter. You know how Orcus is trying to ruin Krakoa's reputation by making it look like mutants are doing all sorts of bad stuff. Yeah, doing that again. Uh, this one has like a little bit of Marvel Civil War mixed in. Uh, the beginning when the New Warriors mess up and kill a bunch of folks in Connecticut. I, I think Steve Orlando just read that issue because it it seems like parts of that are leaking in here. So in this case, there was some kind of explosion. And we're told there's, like, viruses and bacteria hanging around, too. But Orlando really doesn't – he's not interested in the specifics of what actually happened. Just that, hey, there's a skull lying around proving it was done by an, you know, a mutant with an XG. What's the sound effect for this explosion? Oh, It's like I was crack-a-zachoum. Yeah, so crackoom is, like, the usual <laughs> big explosion. Yeah. Crac- crack-a-zachoum which I think that I think that's the best page in the book. I think that that explosion looks pretty cool actually. <laughs> a little flying bicycle in, in the uh, the foreground to give yes. a little 3D effect. Yeah. So after the explosion, how long after, who the hell knows, uh a Crocan team show up to help out. They're wearing these red X uniforms that it looks like uh one of the flags of Northern Ireland. Uh there's something called the uh St. Patrick's Saltier, if I pronounced that correctly. Like, If you think of the, the flag of the uh, United Kingdom, right? It's got the blue yeah. and the white and the red. And it's like it's like three flags overlapped. And the red part from that flag is the Northern Ireland flag. And that's what these uniforms look like to me, which I don't think they're supposed to be Irish. I think it's supposed to make us think of the Red Cross symbol. Yeah. Right? But it's a Rex because they're mutants, get it? And also, you can't use the Red Cross symbol in a book like this. It's actually... A violation of the Geneva Convention. Yeah, so I've I've seen I they, looks they, cool. they complain to uh like uh, uh if you're like a video game and you use the red Red Cross symbol to mean you yeah. know health pack, you, you get a letter from the Geneva Convention people. Interesting.
1: I did laugh because the um, everyone's got these like I guess new uniforms, and then you see Angel in the back, and he's got. Something I've seen in before. <laughs> Nobody gave him a jacket, I guess. <laughs> well, it's he's hard like, to make a jacket for a guy who's got wings. What yeah, he's do? like, I could just I could just put on something I had back when I was an X Factor. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, so they face the usual hate and fear stuff and and all these people who hate and fear them are painted as irrational though. Given the evidence people see and, you know, a bunch of scary stuff that people like, uh, oh, who's the one with the giant claws here? Is it M Plate? There's some, uh, some scary know. stuff that yeah. are Good mutants are doing. I think a little hate and fear is kind of to be expected. Yes. Uh, the main baddies here are a group of white male bikers called the Watchdogs who carry guns and American flags. They don't literally have Fox News logos tattooed on their faces, but it, it's kind <laughs> of implied. Like every every other group in this comic is is super diverse, right? All the boxes checked. These guys are all white dudes. It's it's, it's not subtle. Uh, now, this group of generic goons has actually been around since the late 1980s, mostly as Captain America antagonists. But I see Orlando also use them in Marauders Number Seven. So again, he's bringing the Marauders character.
1: Yeah, I was fine. I recognized them, and I remember. Them did you? I had never heard of them. Kind of before. jerks. Yeah, I think it might have been in those Captain America comics. So I was reading that around that era. But yeah, so it was it was fine as a villain. Um, and I think we have different sensitivities to this kind of I uh, um, I don't know race baiting. But they're, they're consistent with what I remember them being like before, so did not I didn't read into it. I
0: think the fact that, again, a couple places they literally use cable news as, oh, this is where the bad information is being disseminated, Yeah, I, yeah. I thought it was a little bit on the nose. So, uh, yeah, at, at the end, you know, the mutants help people, and they kind of prove that they're not the bad guys, and whatever. Uh, so, <laughs> there's a couple of moderately, I thought, notable elements, so moderately notable element number one the orcus guy responsible for this operation is judas traveler mentioned briefly in a previous episode i think when we saw him on an org chart uh he's in charge of the culture slash narrative division of orcus he's a mutant and we don't know how or why he ended up hooking up with orcus in the first place which could be an interesting story maybe he was mentioned in uh uh, Marauders or X Men Unlimited Infinity Comic because I know Steve Landers wrote those too when he's in those books so maybe it was explained better there. Listeners, if if you have a, an answer to that, well, please do write in. Uh, I am curious again: Is this being coordinated with the other Orca's higher ups doing their own missions? because they kind of seem to be at cross-purposes. And of all the books not to feature Phalong, I would have thought we'd we'd see him in this one, but he's not there. Uh, moderately notable element number two, uh, according to Judas Traveler, he calls the mission a complete success because it gives the mutants bad coverage on we can't actually call it Fox News. It's, it's not a, a horrible idea to say that the true success is you know PR, media. I think we needed more than a one-page montage to sell it. You with me there, at least?
1: Yeah. I didn't really I didn't really buy the townsfolk's reactions and how quickly they flip flop, right? And I didn't understand why the mayor was out there trying to go on the radio or T V and talk about the X Men. Like it's like yes, thank you for cleaning up this mess, but you still kind of had our town exploded <laughs> and they don't do a lot to prove that it wasn't one of their people, right? They just show up and help, right? And they were like, "Oh, this was a false flag thing," and everyone just takes it on, you know, at their word that that was the case. Yeah, there, there's some
0: vague thing where one of the mutants uses a power to project what really happened, and I didn't really quite get that part. I, I think that was the idea. Of, oh, now we've proven we're not the bad guys, but yeah, it, it didn't really get get sold.
1: I mean, as a human in this world with these beings who can do basically anything, including you know, mind control, which we're totally aware of. Oh, we see like, it. We if, see
0: Gene Grey make uh, the bad guys walk in circles until they, uh, what? Until they hear handcuffs. Yeah. So if they don't hear handcuffs, be they're just going to wear the suspicious.
1: Yeah, I'd be extremely suspicious if anything they showed me. I'd be like, okay, great. Like this is just more Minecraft of your abilities. So uh, moderately notable element number
0: three. This is the Steve Orlando book, so you know there's going to be a ton of super obscure cameos. Now the one I'm going to call out is uh, Gemma Shin. Who she goes on TV at the end saying bad things about the mutants? ever ever hear of her? No,
1: I you you asked me to tell me you who my favorite obscure character get, was here. Get, you'll be you'll yes. go next. And, and I'll just say this: like I know none of these characters, like zero of them. <laughs> oh, so, okay. fair enough. Fair enough. All I know is what I see in this issue, and none of them interest me. So Gemma Shin,
0: uh, last we saw her was just two months ago in Daredevil number ten. She is bonded to a symbiote. Specifically, agony. You may have seen agony in some some Daredevil stuff. Uh, she's been working with the Hand, so if she's working with Orca's as well, wow, she's she's a busy lady. Uh, other other cameos here. Uh, Thumbelina. She she shrinks, and she used to be a member of the Mutant Liberation Front. We have Icarus, not Icarus with a K, who's an Eternal. This is Icarus with a C, who is one of Cannonball's many many mutant siblings. Uh, he has wings like Angel, and also like a, a voice like a bird, okay? We've got Crave, who's uh, an Orlando creation from Marauders who can eat anything including biohazard. And we have Ice Scream. That's E-Y-E Scream. He can transform bits of his body into any flavor of ice cream, which I know seems useless, right? But that's what we used to think about gold balls, So, you never know who's going to end up being an omega. So, not much else to say about this one. Fairly pointless story with lots of bits that don't really get explained. Painful, painful dialogue. And of uh, the, art, the art, I'd say, is kind of on the lower end of okay. The opening explosion looks cool after that. To me, most places, pages look kind of flat. The faces look kind of eh. Now, there's a lot of different page layout, which is nice, but I don't really see a lot of rhyme or reason why they're laid out they were other than just, hey, mix it up. But the art is just not the major problem with this book. It just doesn't need to exist. The points made in this book have been made before in other better issues of other better series by other writers. And, and Marvel has told us that these one-shots were going to be essential to understand the lead-up to wherever you know we're going for Fall of X. But so far, not the case. This book is highly skippable. I'm giving it a plain old
1: 5 out of 10. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm giving it. it another 5 because I saw a special want to say it. 5. Yep. There we it, go. Another one that just annoyed me. I think the only thing I enjoyed in this whole issue is we see Grey Crow stirring a big pot of seafood <laughs> and just getting a little crap about that. But that, that amused me. Fair enough. Weird things we have a scene where Iceman is like doing some budgeting stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah. Apparently, canonically, he does have a CPA. Yeah.
0: But I, I didn't, don't know I, what era he got his CPA in, but yeah. it's like, like one of those random cameos, except it's a random bit of continuity. That Orlando yeah, just it, it just up. felt like,
1: like Orlando was like, hey, I want to show that I know this, but like, what was he really accomplishing with that? And seeing him in like four different Iceman bodies, I'm sure he can do that as an Omega, but yeah, just, we, that was just we a little bizarre.
0: In, he just, we saw that for the first time in, I think, X-Men just not all that long ago, where it's like, oh, hey, I can do this now. Yes. Remember, he made like one tiny little version of himself and sent it off across, a ba- I forget what it was, but yeah, we, we have seen that recently. Yeah, I just don't know what they're
1: doing preparing he's he's preparing the word says um, he's preparing us for the bureaucratic and budgetary battles to come it's it, steve orlando saw in a you
0: know a web page somewhere that oh ice man has a cpa so he wanted
1: to. yeah it. but like after some natural disaster the small town's gonna have some budgeting problems or just to like make life easy he he did their taxes i'm sure, for, I'm sure like, there's some way to get on? through but you don't need the friggin' x-men for that
0: Yeah, it's bizarre. Okay, moving on to what I think is actually (laughs) a good book. uh, X-Men number 23, When Cometh the Stark Sentinels, which sounds like a reference to something, but I don't know what it's a reference to. I know the the first issue that has Sentinels in it is called, or at least on the cover says, Among Us Stalk the Sentinels. So maybe it's supposed to evoke that. It is written by Jerry Duggan, art by Joshua Cassara, colors by D. Cunniff, I think is how you say that. Letters by Clayton Cowles, designed by Tom Muller, with Jay Bowen. So yeah, this is a pretty good book. Some decent ideas, and a, a couple pages that are maybe confusing, but I think they might be confusing on purpose to be cleared up later, which is the good kind of confusion.
1: Yeah, I really like the art in this issue. I just want to say that out front. Kassara is awesome, so I, not a name I had kind of on my list of awesome like artists, but it's going up there. It's strange because it's not like that much more detailed. Than anything else, but there's like enough that it does feel more detailed. But that's it's not true. confusing. The right? details
0: are well chosen. The facial expressions are like a little exaggerated because they are comic book characters, but not not ridiculously so. Yeah, he yeah, it, it, it chooses exactly where to put the lines in that that matter to tell the story. Which is, hey, that's that's comic book drawing, right?
1: I'd say exaggerated without being cartoonish or comical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. like It doesn't seem goofy. It just seems like, oh, I understand what emotion you're conveying with that face. And uh, by the way, we're on art. Uh,
0: this is the first X-Book that D. Cuniff is uh, coloring, and I think he does a, a great job. I It's not quite as bright and shiny and intense colors as uh, the previous colorist, or I forget what his name was. But I only know that because I specifically went back and I compared page to page. Other yeah. than that, the, the colors look really nice and, and give it a nice sense of dimension and, and, and shape.
1: Yeah, it's great. The colors are good, because nothing is confusing, right? Like, my eye goes where it should go. Um <laughs> it's you, you mean Mother Righteous's cleavage? Is that what you're going to yeah, yes, yes, that yes. is Yes. That is kind of emphasized. That's not, yeah, whatever. <laughs> and, and her feet, which we will also get to. So, whichever <laughs> okay. you're into, you get into this book. Okay, we suddenly know why I love this uh, issue, huh?
0: <laughs> okay, so the, the first <laughs> scene opens on, again, the Orcus satellite, known as the Bloom, where Dr. Stasis is having dinner with a cloned version of his family, which we've seen him do this before, way back in issue number two of Duggan's X-Men. That was back before we even knew who the guy dining with the clones was. Now, of course, we know who he is. Uh, in issue number two, uh, Dr. Stasis was annoyed that the dinner made by his fake wife had a cream sauce, and so he killed off wife and kid, letting their faces splashed out into their cream sauce dinner plates. Yeah. In this issue... Stasis annoyed at his family, didn't ask him how his day was, and so he kills them off and left their faces splash down into their dinner plates. You you get the feeling
1: this happens a lot. Yeah. I also want to say, too, though, really quick, having read that um, Further Adventures of Gene story, right? Or Cyclops and... Cyclops and Phoenix, yeah. Phoenix, yeah. And seeing as how he actually was kind of really into his family, and that's sort of what pushed him over the edge to become sinister, this is really brutal. Like, this version of him is, like, so... Like, I don't think even, like, Diamond Nathan would murder his family if he had them back. And he's never really made clones of them, right? It seems like he had the ability to do so. Yeah, it's
0: it's pretty brutal. And especially, I thought of that a lot when we had, you know, we learned we're going to talk about in a second with Mother Righteous here. Yeah, And and also, there is a picture of Deadpool uh, magneted to Dr. stacy's refrigerator, which I think must just be an inside joke about, you know, Duggan being a... a former Deadpool writer, because I don't think Dr. Stasis himself
1: <laughs> really likes Deadpool. <laughs> you see him there, right? Right on the Yeah, uh, I didn't notice it the page. first time, but now you're pointing it out. <laughs> yeah, that's kinda of funny. funny. <laughs> uh
0: so I guess that the Orca security isn't that great because who walks in but, you know, the aforementioned Mother Righteous. Yeah. Uh, and by the look on Dr. Stasis' face, she was not invited. She yeah. beats him up pretty good, including, you know, punching him in the nads. That may have been a step too far. And also, stepping on his face with her bare foot. Now, yes. this is another thing that you and I chatted about in Slack, because I was curious, I like, guess she usually barefoot? Because yeah. we don't usually see her feet, but I you know, I Googled. Certainly not emphasized. You no, know, I Googled Mother Righteous Feet. Uh, so now, I don't know what kind of ads Google's going to be giving me in the future, but uh, yeah, apparently she's usually barefoot.
1: Who knew? I mean, I think I went on record very early on saying that I dug the Mother Righteous character look. That's and- true. And... But now I kind of wish she had boots, because it is really bizarre to see a character without footwear. Like, I can't stand people that you see, like, running around. Like, I used to be a kind of a runner, right? I ran a marathon and whatnot. I could not stand, like, those runners that would run barefoot. (laughs) It grosses me out. It would make sense
0: if she were, like, a hippie nature kind of character, right? But she's really not, so I I don't know what the barefoot thing is.
1: Yeah, somebody, I think, just thought, you know, white. White black, we need to like emphasize, right? But you could have given her a red boots. It would have been better.
0: Yeah, it's so an odd now- choice. I'm I'm sure somebody made that choice for a reason. I just yeah. I just don't know what it is. Yeah. So, uh the only like shot that Stasis gets back at her is poking her with like a pointy bit on a ring he's wearing. Yeah. Which it may come back to mean something later, or it might have been just so that Mother Righteous could make a joke about his quote, unwanted little prick. Yeah, I'm not sure. Maybe important, maybe just kind of a dumb joke. Uh, now, the content of the discussion is also notable because the Nathaniel's Essex have been arguing for a long time now about which of any of them counts as the original, if that even means anything. Now, we had thought that Mother Righteous was a version of Nathaniel Essex with like a Y chromosome swap for X. Yes.
1: Yeah, this was a huge reveal
0: for me. But now, yeah, we're led to believe, or at least to consider, that she's a clone of Rebecca Essex, Nathaniel's wife, who we saw die back in Further Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, and the one who gave him the name Sinister. Yeah. So what do you make of this? Is, do you think it's real or just like a little, little mystery? No, I think
1: it's real. What I really want to do is, to, I mean, I'm not going to do this because I'm a little lazy, but I want to go back through, like, Sins of Sinister and see, like, did the Diamond Sinister ever see her without her mask? Because mm. it would like this would have come up before, <laughs> it's like you would yeah, be like, I really recognize you. Weird. Yeah, yeah, I recognize you. You're my my deceased wife or a clone of her. So I'm like, is this the first time that she interacted? Because other characters I could get right, like I'm sure um, some of the people from, uh, gosh, what the is that character's name? Like Banshee wouldn't know her. Legion, Banshee, yeah, all them. Like they wouldn't be like, oh yeah, you're clearly the ex-wife of Nathaniel.
0: <laughs> right, who would know that?
1: Or deceased wife.
0: I guess. I mean, even ex-wife. even Cyclops and Jean, they
1: met her once a zillion years ago. No. Yeah, yeah, I'm okay with that. It's not like they have a regular relationship, but you would think that all the Nathaniel Essex clones would be like, holy crap, right? Yeah, I, I think if I ran across a clone of my wife, it would it would stand out to me. Yes.
0: Uh, yeah, so here's here's my crazy theory. Now, if Mother Rachel is actually Rebecca Essex for some version of actually, maybe some of the other Essex- Essexes are actually their son, Adam, or oh, the unnamed son who died after being born prematurely? Yeah, I mean, probably not. Probably wrong. I'm just putting it out there. So if it happens to be true, I can claim credit.
1: That's or who's in the Dominion, right? I mean, that's sort of the other mm-hmm. thing. We just assumed it must be a sinister sitting in the Dominion, but what if it's a ooh a different what if it's a Rebecca, ah, right? Or what yeah. if it's an Adam? Like, who
0: knows? It could be somebody else. I like that connection. And and also in the scene, we learn that Doctor Stasis doesn't know about Orbis Stellaris he kind of hypothesizes there must be a spade version of us out there, because we've got the other three. But, I mean, he he doesn't know what happened in Sins of Sinister timeline. So, I guess that that makes sense. He wouldn't know that. Yeah, I think it's
1: it's cool. It helps to, like, frame who knows what at this point in time. And she's the one that knows everything, right? Like, and this is a whole yeah, thing about her, like whole rebooting library it. Library back from the future that fills her in on everybody's secrets. She's definitely in the driver's seat, right? Like she's got the information and she's
0: utilizing it. She is, and she very much does not want Doctor Stasis making any more clones of his wife and son. So he's not going to do that anymore. Okay. Uh, the next scene is the longest sequence of the book, uh, where the X Men kind of fight a Stark Center. Uh, there's this building on fire in the Bronx. Some firemen get trapped in a burning building and they're rescued by a Stark Sentinel, which is, you know, Orcus looking to get some more good PR after saving the world on Judgment Day, right? Now, are Phelong and the Stark Sentinels publicly known to be working with Orcus, do you think? Or is that still kind of hush-hush? That's a good
1: question. I don't see I mean, we,
0: Orcus logos on the Stark Sentinel itself.
1: Yeah, I don't. But at the same time, Orcus was back at Judgment Day trying to get good PR, right? They showed up and helped save people. and So I don't think that to the wider public, the Orcus is like a dirty word, per se. Right, but I just don't know if the whole
0: Stark, you know, the Stark Unlimited, Falon, are they known to be Orcus part Associates. of Orcus? Yeah, i or no? sure. So everything's you know, fine and dandy here until the Central determines that one of the firemen, hey, that's a, st- a stinking mutie. <laughs> uh, so, uh, the old Central program kicks in and that fireman's in trouble until yeah. he gets rescued by the X-Men. Now, was this all staged by Orca's to draw out the X-Men, make them look bad? Was the Fireman even actually a mutant? Are they worried about, like, the story is going to get out that a Stark central tried to murder a fireman to death for being <laughs> a
1: mutant? I don't know, that was maybe a little yeah. yeah. Well, Faolong's got some money, right? He could probably cover up the I suppose. The news. So, I mean, Orcus, I get we mm-hmm. did have Orcus flying around on their ship, right, having people jump out the window. Just the one guy, yep, that was just a test. Yeah, so, I don't think they're necessarily worried about Doing stuff to people and getting, you know,
0: associated with it. Well, they don't. They don't care about people, but they do want all the bad stuff to be associated with Koa. right? They want to be the ones, you know, fighting for humanity.
1: My biggest question here, and you, I think you will probably know what I'm going to say, is we turn the page and we see Cyclops, right? And he's in his freaking '90s Cyclops <laughs> gig, and I, I just I, need I, I to know, like why to the outfit. So that's all I Why did he change his outfit? It makes no sense to me. It looks cool. That's why. Yeah, I just wonder—is this like some kind of? You know, I'm on the outs with my wife, so I'm gonna put on my sexier outfit and see what I can. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, sure, you're you're kind of feeling like your you're younger self,
0: and you want to kind of back along. your glory days. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's text a little it, weird. Text an
1: old old flame like it kind of does at the end. Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted. I want to know why he went back to that look. I hope they don't. I hope they address it. I need to know. It's such a. <laughs> arbitrary thing but i need to that's know that's a good question so the x-men do win the fight but it's a
0: tough one uh, eventually yeah. magic teleports bits of the sentinel to like various dimensions all across the universe It is is you know, a pretty cool way to be the sentinel yeah uh, but the what's strange to me here is the x-men are really really worried that one of them might end up dying like like that matters anymore right <laughs> they're really worried about that and sing comes to close to the death she get he gets swatted down by this Giant Sentinel hand. Uh, yeah. He's really messed up, like with bones sticking out, and he's yeah. only saved by borrowing Old Lady Laura's healing factor. I yeah. mean, what's the big deal? Resurrection's a thing. Just you know, make a new, uh, make a new one.
1: Yeah. Well, I worry about Laura, right? Because remember,
0: we've got a clone
1: and a regular, and you don't know they're if they're going
0: to bring back the clone version. But they're going to bring back Sync. Yeah, they're definitely bringing back Sync. There's no doubt about that. And I, I thought it should be at least mentioned. Oh yeah, sure, we could resurrect them, but we'd rather not say
1: so yeah i'll I'll say this too about the the art and the maybe the writing the fight's pretty good and i usually think of sentinels as as at this point in time like they're kind of a joke right they don't seem like a huge threat they did a good job of showing them like with this iron man upgrade they are suddenly formidable i felt like oh the i don't want to see a bunch of these like they're gonna get their butt kicked yeah for sure so raises the stakes if they are sending an army of them to crack at the hellfire gala yeah, and
0: it does tie into that idea that, you know, Tony helped out by you know, blowing up one factory, but there's still gonna be plenty of other Stark Sentinels yeah. to uh
1: And the other thing I'll say is, you know, the whole they this is sort of a pseudo false flag, right? Like yes, they take them down, but there's plenty of video showing them, you know, the mutants fighting, which I guess are viewed as peacekeeping bots yeah, and destroying and
0: them. I'm sure the video could be re edited and spun in yeah. a different way, so you could you could you could say that's a win and a loss.
1: But you, see, but you see magic, right, when she's like yelling, die, 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 where I guess she's like opening portals and like cutting them, mm-hmm. you know, closing them, opening them, closing them, just like chop up the, the sentinel, which is a great way to finish it, but she does look pretty brutal, right? Like you showed me a film of somebody going berserker like that, I'd be like, yeah, they're not a good person. For sure. And also on a prior page, on page 18,
0: we do see that she gets a little cut on her cheek from like yeah. a harpoon sh- shot out of one of the sentinels. and. That's yep. going to matter a little bit later. Uh, so we have two more like, quick scenes to wrap things up. Uh, in this next scene, we learn that Orcus is building a secret prison on Randall's Island in New York City, which is a real island of the East River, a little less than a square mile in size, currently mostly parks and like hospitals. So Jerry Duggan did some homework there. Good for him. Uh, Stasis, Nimrod, and who else is going to be here? Any any guesses? Any guesses? <laughs> it's Faelong again. My gosh. Yeah. That dude's busy. He is all over. He is just hanging out here and they're talking about, you know, what just happened. And we learn that in the battle, they managed to implant some, not exactly sure, I'm going to call it like nanobots, some tiny Dr. Stasis machines within magic, which must be in that scene where we see her get the tiny cut. Uh, yeah. They wanted to get those nanobots or whatever to Jean Grey, but Stasis says, unfortunately, she has yet to feel my sting, uh, which reminds me of a couple things. Like, number one, Mr. Sinister corrupting the genomes of quiet council members and other mutants, right? That's a thing that Nathaniel Essex is due. Number two, it reminded me of Mr. Sinister and Hellions using tiny mosquito-like drones to collect genes of mutants of Morocco, And also, it reminded me of Dr. Stasis just a couple of pages ago sticking Mother Righteous in the hand with a little piece of metal. Do you think he just compromised Mother Righteous the same way they compromised magic? Or is that just a red herring, a little weird coincidence. I don't think that, that
1: um, Dr. Stasis has as much going on versus Mother Righteous as they do against Snail Magic. It's, again, it's a little, a small cut that was played
0: off as nothing and just that, that symmetry of this little cut over here, this little cut over there. The second one turned out to be a big deal. Maybe the first one did too. I'm I'm curious to see if
1: that Ends up going in. Maybe yeah. A- I'm flipping back to that page, and he's and stasis is telling Righteous it's just a little jab to keep us on equal footing. Which could you could read that a couple ways. Yeah, so
0: maybe it is some, something. Maybe
1: very interesting.
0: Which I mean, we need somebody to Mother Righteous is like way out ahead of everybody in every book. Yeah. So we need something to kind of you know knock her down a little bit to to make it more of an even fight. Yeah. Okay, one last scene. This is a beautiful sunset on a beautiful cocoan beach. It, I mean I would I would love to hang out there. At least I would without them. Look there's some some giant nasty crabs. I don't know if, if that's just a, a they're way closer to the camera or, <laughs> or if they're just giant crabs. <laughs> and also uh we see Emma chatting with the Kingpin who's you know, he's promising he's gonna play along, be a good boy, not cause any trouble. Uh, we don't yeah. see Typhoid Mary here, but we know that in August Mary's going to be on his team with magic in that realm of X. Now Cyclops shows up, and I think he's really clumsily trying to get in Emma's pants. Here is that that what's going on? Oh, Jean's oh, I'm broke up with Jean, so hey I, Emma, how about you and me? No, yes, kind of yes. gross. <laughs> now remind me why are Jean and Scott on the outs? Is it just the whole rude genocide disagreement?
1: Yes, yeah, she didn't like the idea that he was advocating for the extermination of a
0: species again i i'd like to see more of that you know, a scene between the two of them other than that kind of weird brood scene because clearly there's a somebody's decided that they're not going to be together for a while you know not yes. broken up in quite the same way as you know peter and mary jane but almost the same idea and yeah i'd like to i'd like to see exactly where that's coming <clears throat> so now emma drops a tidbit on scott that not so big for the X books necessarily, but could be huge for like the Marvel world more broadly. Emma tells Scott that Ms. Marvel has died, which is you know, happened in Amazing Spider-Man. I think it was twenty-six. Spoilers. Spoilers. Sure, I
1: did not know that.
0: <laughs> really? Oops. Sorry about that.
1: Yeah, that's no, fine. I'm, I don't <laughs> care. you've it away.
0: Yeah, we. It's yeah. been you know big news all over. Uh, you know, Marvel stuff. For, actually, okay. we, it was spoiled by uh, by Marvel way ahead of the actual issue. Because they reveal it's going to be a whole, you know, funeral for a friend, you know, memorial situation. Uh, I mean, you read this issue, so you know that Ms. Marvel is dead. Now, Scott and Kamala were on the Champions team together, so he has a relationship with her. You know, going back, okay, yeah, that's why. Like, why do they know each other? (laughs) He was like, because the Champions were like the the kid heroes, your your Teen Titans equivalent, right? Uh And Scott was like their their grown up mentor for a while. Interesting. Uh, So then the conversation takes an odd turn. I'm going to give you the dialogue. Emma says, I'm going to assume that this changes your calculus, as if Scott knows calculus, but (laughs) that this changes your calculus (laughs) on our previous conversation. (coughs) Scott says, yes, of course. Emma, she has a secret identity and a family who... Emma says, don't worry. It's nothing I can't solve as Krakoa's premier janitor. So my theory, and this is another one I've kicked around in the Slack, or in the Patreon, you know, kick things around in Slack. Uh, I think, and I know a lot of other people have the same theory. so I'm, I'm no genius here. It looks like to me that Kamala Khan will be resurrected. We know she's coming back. I yeah. think she's going to get resurrected on Krakoa. She's not a mutant as, as far as we know, but, you know, Krakoa might have her DNA on file. Why not? Yeah. And resurrecting like a young minority hero like Kamala would fit right in with a whole Phoenix Foundation initiative right? Yeah. Thanks to Matt Razor in Slack for reminding me the name of that dang thing I could not pull out of my brain, Phoenix Foundation. Kamala is an inhuman and inhuman powers don't manifest without exposure to Terrigen Mist. So uh, if she's, she's resurrected, I don't think she'd have inhuman powers anymore. Yeah. So either they need to find some inhumans with some Terrigen Mist to, you know, make her a hero again, but you know, Marvel doesn't really want to deal with inhumans these days, right? They've been deprecated, they've been pushed off to the side.
1: Yeah.
0: And in... The movies, or at least the TV shows, the MCU stuff, they've been hinting that Kamala Khan, Ms. Marvel, is a mutant. So oh, So really? maybe when they resurrect her, either they discover, hey, she has an X gene too, or maybe Krakoan science sticks a little X gene in there. Just yeah. to say, that doesn't happen. So yeah, I think, mm. I think this could be their way of bringing Ms. Marvel back and kind of making her a mutant, a mutant. and not an inhuman because
1: we don't like them anymore. <laughs> That's fascinating. That's cool. I have that's all a, sorts of crazy theories this a, week. Yeah, these are – Yeah, I just had to prod you, and then you come up with your craziest <laughs> theories. <laughs> I love it. That's great. I, I want to see that.
0: I hope that actually plays out. Yeah, again, that probably won't be big. I mean, it'll happen in X-Books at some point, probably, if it really is going to happen, but more about, you know, the rest of the Marvel world. So, yeah, that's the end of this book, and I really liked it. Uh, I still don't like the narration style. Maybe the fight scene maybe went on a page or two too long, but overall, a, a really good book with a lot of things to argue about
1: and you know dream about. I give it an eight. I I've, I was wild. It's been a while since I felt like Duggan's done anything that felt like he was dropping truth bombs or anything interesting, and this this one had a lot of those. And yeah. I didn't even think of this Miss Marvel theory, which is like another cool thing that he kind of seeded in here. So, and I don't think I even thought about the prick that that hard. Now I want to know like what's going on between. Doctor Stasis and uh, Mother Righteous. So there's a lot of like nuggets here that gets me excited, and it feels like there's depth to this issue.
0: Yeah, beyond it, just it a feels story. here like there's some some Ford momentum, which a lot of the books don't have, especially right now as we you know kind of wait for Fall of X. And it feels like this book matters, which yeah. the X Men flagship title has not felt like that for a while. So it's nice yeah. to come back. And yeah, I I also even here in my notes I gave it an eight out of ten. So we're in agreement there. All right, so we still have one last book to talk about today. Uh, we, made, we made pretty good time for our, you know, a plethora of books, but our last book is Immortal X-Men issue number 12, called The Idiot, uh, written by of course, Kieran Gillen, art by Lucas Wernick, colors by David Curiel, letters by Clayton Cowell, designed by Tom Muller, and Jay Bowen. Now, every issue of Immortal has a focus character, and the focus character here is Piotr Rasputin Colossus, which adds a wrinkle because Colossus is currently being controlled or influenced by this mutant working for Pyotr's either brother Mikhail, and this mutant who's in control is named I show off my Russian here, Letopisets, which translates to something like Chronicler. Now we don't know exactly how Chronicler's powers work, but he's using like a novelistic style of writing to force Colossus to be this mole within Krakoan's society. Now, the narration boxes here come across like it's what Chronicler is writing down, but there's also moments where Colossus is resisting the influence, and we see that in the narration boxes. So it's like a, like a battle, like a mental battleground between the two of them, which is kind of fun. Did you like the narration this time? I thought it was okay, yeah.
1: I, 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 like that it, mean, I don't totally something. understand the power. Yeah, it definitely means something. I still I still don't really understand what the Chronicler's power set is Yeah, but... nobody does. I don't think even uh, Kieran Gillen does frankly, but uh, <laughs> it's kind of neat. Yeah. Now we I wish say, I wish somebody would uh, it's kind of too late at this point, but I wish somebody had said like he can do this, he can't do that because it seems almost like unstoppable. Yeah. Even or if even if we didn't weren't told
0: as the readers, I'm not sure that the various writers who are dealing with him are entirely on the same page, right? There's a, it's a, a Ben Percy thing, right? In X, yeah, that's originally his. X-Force. Yep, yep. So yeah, maybe, maybe it should get a little more on the same page, or maybe it is, and we just don't see it yet. Oh, also, yeah. I think it's kind of neat that we know is not really thrilled about working for Mikhail, so maybe part of this is he's trying to do enough to not get in trouble with his boss, but he wouldn't be all that upset if, if, if it if, uh, didn't work perfectly well. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. So this is a very talky issue with like there's a quick fight and a sudden murder thrown in. Again, spoiler, like to keep us on our toes, but it's engaging throughout. And, and Lucas Wernick does a really good job of making each page feel tense and exciting, even when it's just uncomfortable conversation number 17. So he it, it does a good job on what could be a really boring looking issue, but isn't. So at the end of the previous issue, we saw two important things happen. We saw Mother Righteous giving Shaw a list of motions she wants him to bring up uh, with the council. And we saw Storm giving Colossus her proxy vote to use when she's away on Araco, And he gets Nightcrawler's proxy vote as well, since Nightcrawler had given his to Storm. Now remember, the recently resurrected members of the council, right now Xavier, Hope, Exodus, and Emma, they don't get to vote. So power is getting... Really, really concentrate. Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe they should have had a constitution. Just, just saying. Maybe, maybe an oligarchy of twelve people who can do whatever they want. Maybe wasn't the perfect form of government. <laughs> just saying. So, yeah, this comes to a head right here in this very first scene at issue number twelve. Uh, Shaw makes his play, and Colossus backs him up. They've got a deal. Uh, and to fill the seat vacated by a Sinister, Shaw proposes. Selene, which is an odd choice because like back in Immortal number one, the very first issue of the series, Selene was rejected as a possible Quiet Council member and yeah. she didn't react so well. She didn't take it so great. She attacked the island with a giant bug monster. Uh, and then in issue number two, she died. Actually, she died twice. Like first she was shot in the head by Hope, then she was resurrected in Exodus, manipulated her mentally to get rid of that bug monster, and then he killed her again. Uh, by doing the same thing that that Bane did to Alfred. Sorry, spoilers for Tom King's Batman number seventy-seven. I haven't caught up with that one yet. But, I mean, she's magic. She's an external, so death doesn't really apply to her. I guess that's fine. Yeah, yeah. And she's back now. I guess Mother Righteous really wants her on the council, and yeah. so now she's on the council. Now, why? Do you have any speculation for why Mother Righteous might specifically want this Sorry. crazy lady on the Quiet Council? I mean, I assume you're just trying to destroy Krakoa from the inside. I guess, but like, why specifically Selene? It's an odd choice. Yeah, yeah. I don't, don't know. know. I'm sure Gillen has a plan. I just, I just can't figure out what it might be. She got magic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he, it could be. I mean, I, magic I is, is a tie between the two characters.
1: I, an interesting thing here, though, is her whole argument was we don't have any good magic users on the council who could help with defending the island against magical attacks, right? Right. Like so uh, a like this... for uh, Apocalypse, yeah. Yeah, so it's almost like sabotaging in a way, right, if you assume that this improves their defense against magical attacks. Mm, but but it's actually on team magical attacker. Yeah. yeah. Could be.
0: Very well could be. So it, it, it gets complicated here, so I'm going to try not to get too bogged down in the details, but some of these details are important. So Destiny now accuses Shaw of working for Orcus, and she really seems to believe, like she's predicting that he'll be found to be a tool of Orcus, but Rasputin Fourth is called in to give Shaw the old, you know, psychic hook probe, and yeah. Rasputin says, he, she doesn't poke around to learn all his bad stuff, she is just a, a strict yes-no on is he connected with Orcus. Yeah. And she says, no, no connection. Yeah. Now, why do you think Destiny's prediction didn't come true? Later, she blames that, oh... The Sins of Sinister timeline getting undone is kind of confusing her powers, but do you think it's anything else?
1: Do you think that she intentionally
0: was wrong? Oh, I definitely don't think that. I think Destiny okay. is,
1: is very honestly confused
0: here, but yeah. I don't know
1: if I there's something it was going the, on to do that. Yeah, I, I, I speculated that it really was just a Sinister thing being all spun out. I'm not the sure the, the point jarbled. of this
0: little plot thing, because nothing else in this issue really hinges on this having been checked out, or Destiny being wrong. So, I, 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 again, I'm again, I'm sure that Kieran Gillen put this in for a reason. I just don't see what it is yet. I mean, it drives the conversation between Mystique and her, right? I guess, but is that necessary for what happens later? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe. Anyway, so, uh, Colossus helped Shaw get slayed out of the council, and now we see what he gets in return. So what he gets is that now... Nightcrawler's vote, which up to now was only for Colossus to have when Storm was away, now he gets it permanently, at least until you know Nightcrawler see this film. So if if, yeah. if if Storm comes back, she doesn't get the Nightcrawler. She gets her own vote back, but not the Nightcrawler. Which again, this whole way of running a country, it doesn't <laughs> really work for me. Oh, I get I get his vote, I get her vote. It it, it doesn't work. But, I mean, yeah. Again, that's the whole point of this. The series is you know the government of Krakoa falling apart. So, yes. It's not a criticism, it's an observation. Yeah. Uh, and then Colossus proposes that the full details of the sinister timeline be made public, not just to Krakoa, but to the whole world. And I guess that's just Mikhail wanting to make Krakoa look bad, kind of like Orcus wants to make look look bad, I guess? Yeah. Yeah. Because this is Mikhail's play, I th- or, is it, or is this Mother Righteous's play? I don't even know where this is coming from.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uncertain, and also I don't e- I don't exactly. Know I think it's Mother Righteous. Why this would no, shame you so no, much? No, no.
0: It's coming from a chronicler, so must be Mikhail. Anyway, so we get some drama before this plays out because the four possibly compromised council members are waiting outside at the, at the children's table, and, and Hope can't help but do a little psychic eavesdropping. And when she kind of susses what's up, she tries to rush in and stop things. I guess the council chamber has a door now. I always pictured it being kind of like out in the open, but here, <coughs> excuse <here's a coughs> me. I always pick it as being kind of out in the open, but I I guess it's it has a door, it's being a door guarded by Rasputin. Yeah. So Rasputin is given a little extra push to fight back even harder. And this is the first time we see how Mother Righteous's like thank you power works. Rasputin had said thank you to Mother Righteous, like after being brought back through time, etc. And now we see kind of a cutaway to Mother Righteous like burning a feather and doing this little magical ritual and saying thank you, Mother Righteous, but backwards like Satana, and this makes her have some very strong control over Rasputin. Although Rasputin was going to stop the entry anyway, so I was a little, a little <laughs> unnecessary, I think. Yeah. But we—they wanted us to see this power before it's used again. So again, I'm—I'm I'm not super comfortable with the whole Thanksgiving power, but at least we're really now seeing. How that works? And I thought that looked pretty cool. What did What did you think of that? That while well, I take a little drink
1: here, the the page
0: where she's using her witchcraft, Just the whole idea to... of
1: how the power works. Yeah, I don't like backwards magic, so I I was kind of like, oh god, is this <laughs> is this how you do your magic spells? But um, but I, I like seeing her kind of you know pushing the ball a little bit, you know. Not really exactly directing what they do, but seems to be like amping up emotion or something to kind of. Yeah, I'm glad that it's getting specific. Slightly it, it was
0: vague for a long time, but it, I'm glad to see that Kieran Gillen has had this plan.
1: Yeah, it definitely looks like a spell, right? It looks like a, like a Constantine style spell. Oh yeah, not very, the kind of like very rich magic way. shooting out of your fingers, but like you need to do some rituals to leverage what you've got. Which makes me think she couldn't necessarily use this power really effectively in the middle of a combat situation. Probably not. It's like she doesn't
0: she doesn't have to be there and there's almost like she can't be right there. I am curious, is it only one use per person per thanks? Like is Rasputin now free? Or could Mother Righteous do this to her again forever? I don't know. I think that matters a lot. We don't know that part yet. So Hope can't get in to break up the vote, but Emma reads Hope's mind, which I guess isn't breaking the rules. Emma tells Exodus what's up, and then Exodus brings Storm, who can vote. He brings Storm back from Morocco. So now the sinister timeline vote is deadlocked four to four. So that's Colossus times two, Shaw and Selene on one side, and Kitty, Destiny, Mystique, and Storm on the other. So just, it can't pass, it's a tie. So there's, again, there's a fun bit going on in these narration boxes with Colossus fighting to come up with ways to, like, slow things down and delay the vote and taking advantage of Chronicler's kind of love of drama to get that accomplished. That was that was really well done, I thought. So in one sense, Colossus loses his vote, but it's really Chronicler, or Mikhail, who loses, and Colossus in the bigger picture wins a very small victory, temporary. So uh, it's already a lot. Another big scene comes up. Mystique and Destiny go off together, and uh, first Destiny predicts that Mystique is about to murder her to death, which is weird, and I guess that previous scene is showing that destiny's predictions are now not always to be trusted so we're supposed to think oh that's not going to happen uh but but yeah it it does happen but but first uh mystique plays that sinister timeline recording that mother righteous gave to her last issue the one that reveals destiny you know choosing that timeline as a way of keeping mystique alive uh mystique isn't happy about this and she's actually I, i like this a lot she's way more mature about the nature of like love and life than anything we saw about destiny. Mystique accepts that maximizing the length of her own life is not the be-all and end-all, and she didn't like what destiny did here. But now we see Mother Right just do that feather-burning, backwards-talking thing again, and Mystique just brutally murders destiny right then and there which is traumatic and awful, but undone very quickly as Destiny is, of course, resurrected later so quickly that Mystique is still covered up by the murder blood when she comes back out, which is, I think that just shows you how how quickly this happens. Now, there is one bigger consequence, though. Destiny got brought back, and so now maybe she's compromised, and now she can't vote. So we go back to that Sinister Timeline Revelation vote, and it's four to three. The Sinister Timeline Revelation vote passes, and Mother Righteous really, really wanted that to happen. And again, I know Kieran Gillen has a plan, but I don't know exactly why that's so important to her. Any crazy theories? Uh-oh. Ruben, are you there?
1: Yes, sorry. Okay. I was talking while muted. Oh. Um. No, I don't have any like understanding of why that's important, and I question why the world would care that much about this revelation. It's hard to put wrap your mind around, right? Because like, we don't. In the present experience that if you're like, oh yeah, this alt dimension, this crazy stuff happened and then it got reset, other than I guess maybe you'd be like, well, they're more dangerous, so we got to take those powers away from them. But maybe it's hard to, it's hard Again, to care, that, that right? It seems
0: very orcus, and I don't know what Mother Righteous's plan is. Like, what? what is what is in the sinister, the sins of sinister timeline? She wanted to become the Dominion. She knows that's off the table now. So, what is her goal now? What what is her motivation? As they say in acting class, I don't know. Does she just want to cause chaos? Mm. I, I think she's more complicated, more selfish than that. So, I'm yeah. really curious what she's after. And also, Mystique doesn't seem to face any consequences over this whole murder thing. Nobody. I guess everyone's really busy. But I think I would question. Hey, you just murdered your wife out of nowhere. Maybe we should look into that.
1: <laughs> yeah. And
0: maybe that'll come up next issue, but Mystique can't explain it. Nobody can explain it. I wonder how Destiny reacts now after that yeah. happened. That's got to be a little traumatic. Even though she's going to be brought back without the memory of that conversation? Is that important? I
1: don't know. But you'd wonder why you were killed. I,
0: I certainly would. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I would. Okay. Yeah. So, Colossus tries one more time to get it across to like somebody, anybody, trying to say, hey, I've been compromised here. I'm, I'm being controlled. And in arguing with Storm over like his weird actions, he says to her, I am not your playing piece, emphasizing the your, trying yeah. to imply that he's somebody else's playing piece. Yeah. But Storm is too annoyed to pick up on such subtleties. And as best as we can tell, she doesn't get anything from there. Again, maybe it'll turn out next issue that, oh, she did get it, but she didn't let on. Who knows? But that's the end of this book. Now, next time, it looks like we have a Doug Ramsey issue coming which, I mean, that could be fun. He's not technically on the Quiet Council. We're kind of running out of Quiet Council members to, to feature, unless we go to Selene. Uh, but he is the voice of Krakoa, and he has the front row to a, a whole lot of shenanigans, so that could be cool. Uh, let's see, what else did I want to talk about this issue? Oh, uh, uh, the whole Russian novel motif. Kieran Gillen's making uh, references to Dostoevsky all over the place. I mean, talks about uh, Raskolnikov from Crime and Punishment, Prince Mishkin from The Idiot. Uh, I mean, Really tying into this whole, you know, Colossus being a Russian guy, his brothers, the Russian guy, the Russian novelist controlling him. The idea of, of Russian novels as never ending happily. Uh, so I thought that was kind of neat. Uh, do you, have you read a lot of Russian novels yourself, there, Ruben, in your spare time? think <laughs> of a lot of War and Peace, Crime and Punishment.
1: I yeah, I, I have tried to and started a few of those novels, mm-hmm. but um, kind of a happy go lucky dope and. <laughs> I need things and happy so they always turn me off. I'm just I, like I
0: I read Crime and Punishment years ago and it is, I mean to say that Crime and Punishment is a is a really good book, not breaking any news here. Yeah. I I've taken a run at uh, Brothers Karamazov a couple times and I never got the momentum to get, you know, really get get into it. So I'll have to try that again some. Uh the other thing I wanted to mention is comparing Mother Righteous's magical mind control with Chronicler's mutant mind control. They're both happening at the same time, but they seem really different. And Mother Righteous version is much more intense. She can make, I mean, she could make Mystique murder destiny like in, in a split second. Uh, so that seems much more powerful than, you know, Chronicler can be resisted, at least a little bit. More yeah. su- it's more subtle, more long-term. And we don't know, is Chronicler, is he somehow only tied to Colossus? Did they have to
1: get access to his brains somehow? We didn't see? I mean, that's the thing that drives me nuts, is I don't understand, yeah, how Chronicler is only working on Colossus. Like, what is it that makes him have that ability? Because otherwise, it seems like he could be really undermining Greco pretty quickly with his power, but... I think my best theory
0: is that because he's working for McHale, who is the brother, so maybe there's some... I have a connection to the brother, and the genes, the blood... Some some kind of connection through Mikhail might be how they can get into Glosses. Just a guess. Uh, and then, yeah, Mother Righteous's idea. Is it, we know it works through the things. It's very intense. And can she keep doing this, or is it like a, a one and done? She used it up. I yeah. want to know about that. So, yeah, a lot of stuff to talk about, a lot of stuff to think about. Kieran Gillum is a really great writer. I mean, probably my favorite of the current line. I'm glad to see that he's going to be around doing this for at least a little while longer he says long term he's going back to his indie stuff but he says something recently about he's like halfway through the, the a number of
1: x books that he wants to write so, yeah it sounds a little bit like he's kind of turned in a bunch of scripts they haven't all been published but i'm sure yeah i, I heard hope. rumors that he was going to be like
0: the next big architect of the next status quo after krakoa but Unless he is just really, you know, denying that for contractual reasons, it sounds like that's not going to
1: happen, Yeah, I really enjoy the political issues like this. He mm-hmm. does a really good job of, of, like you said, making what's just an administrative process engaging.
0: Yeah, and it's, it's political in the sense of people with different interests working against each other, not in the sense of, you know, issue of the day. The, the writer saying he's on the good guy's side. So it's the good kind of politics in life.
1: And I'm really interested in what Sebastian's up to these days. Sebastian. Because again, it might be who Sebastian is? Oh, Shaw. Shaw. Yes. Okay. Shaw. Sure. Yes, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, because he kind of knows about Righteous, right? <laughs> I always think of the crap in Little Mermaid. Who's,
0: who's Sebastian? Yeah. <laughs> Stuck at that Krakoa beach saw, from we last We saw issue. that, yeah, yeah. exactly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Under the sea. Yes, that a first appearance. <laughs> <laughs> He's actually
0: a mutant. I mean, it's yes. owned by Disney. It could happen. It could happen, yes. people. Yes. Anyway, we're getting kind of silly here. We've been doing going at this for a longer period than usual. So I'm just going to say I'm giving this book an eight out of ten. Yeah, same. I was happy, and and those last two books got me excited for Hellfire. Okay, so let's look ahead to next week. Uh, Next we have X-Men Red number 12, uh, where it seems we'll get more of a current timeline, John Ironfire. Maybe learn a little more about the return of Genesis, so looking forward to that. Wolverine number 34, Logan continuing his war against Beast and the weapons of X. And Rogan Gambit number four, penultimate issue of that series. So, a couple of those books I'm really excited about, and then there's Rogan Gambit. (laughs) <laughs> uh, so I know I know it's been a while, Ruben. You've been away, but you're you're tanned, rested, and ready. Yeah. Do yeah. You happen to recall that what thing say. that we say at the
1: end of every episode. Yeah. Well you should read more X Men comics, that's for sure. But I'm gonna give you some other things to read. Oh, we've got some got some recommended reading. Okay, go for it. Yes. So Matt Razor Turned Me On to Oblivion Song by mm-hmm. uh Robert. Kirkman, right? Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's actually really cool. I'd read that. Um I think the Loki series that uh jim is reviewing is pretty good at least the first issue got me excited so i i subscribe to that nice um firepower is returning very soon i'm so far
0: behind on that i've bought all those issues but i haven't haven't read them in a while
1: yeah well get caught up because you have until july okay i better get going yeah and then for the oldie stuff another thing jim's been reviewing the invisibles has been surprising me at how good that is that's very old, but you yeah, can. Yeah, I read that first
0: issue, and I've been enjoying those uh, those podcasts and YouTube videos that he's doing with Oh Gray. Is that the gentleman's name? Yep. He's doing that. Yep. Cool. So yeah. So go read those books, and also while you're read at it, X-Men. read more <laughs> X Men. Read more X Men comics. <laughs> bye bye. All right. Bye.